Okay, well, welcome everybody. Um, it's always great to have not just the adults, but um, the teens with us. Um, this is your Sunday school class too, um, young people, so please know you're always welcome to speak up. And that's important because this is going to be a discussion class. Um, one of the books in my office um, is called Making It Stick, and it's a book about pedagogy, how to teach. And one of the things in there is uh, basically that um, someone standing up front just sort of talking to you, where you're sort of passively sitting there um, absorbing it, is actually one of the worst ways to teach (laughs) in terms of what actually gets inside. Um, And that what really is helpful is when people have to do something with what they're learning. And... um, So I'm going to be asking lots of questions, and I want you to do something with me. I want you to think with me about the Word. And this is important to say on the outset because, um, you know, if you're listening online, um, obviously it's going to be difficult to hear what people are saying. I'm going to do my best to uh, repeat people, the essence of what people have said. Um, But I may not repeat everything, and I may not repeat every comment because um, we only have so much time. So I'll do what I can to make it possible for you to follow online. But if you really want the full, rich learning experience, come. (laughs) So I'm glad everybody, for everybody who's here. Okay, so we are beginning today a new class that will stretch for a couple months where we're going to continue through the book of Exodus And um, because of uh, the special Sunday School next week where we'll be presenting on the budget and stuff, there will be a little one-week pause there. Um, But what I want to do just to get going here before we dive into the actual book of Exodus is just spend a little bit of time answering this question. Why do we as Christians study the Old Testament? Like, why is that worth doing in this phase of history where we now have the New Testament, God's climactic revelation for us in Christ. How should we respond when someone brings up a passage from the Old Testament? Say, you you know, you're you're trying to encourage your friend. You bring up this passage um, from the Old Testament that you think is relevant to what they're going through, um, showing them, hey, this is how you ought to live. How should we respond when that person just sort of waves their hand and says, that's the Old Testament, doesn't apply anymore? Thoughts? Yes, Lori. Exactly. So the God of the New Testament, is he not the same as the God of the Old? Yes. In fact, one of the earliest heresies of the church, Marcionism, is that... The, the two are not the same God. So I'm just going to start a chart going up here about the Old Testament and the New. What, what are the things that are the same? And then what are things that are different? Because there are differences. Uh, different. Okay, there are differences. So Lori's bringing up probably the most important Um, same thing, (laughs) is that it's the same God. And indeed, one of the greatest character descriptions of God is found in the part of Exodus that we're going to be going through together. Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is so important that it just keeps on coming up over and over again 
throughout the Bible, um, and we'll talk about that in due time. What else? Why, why, why should we care about the Old Testament? What's, what's the same and what's different as we come to the Old Testament? Yeah. Okay, yeah. There are definitely different, different we would say, um, different. you're talking about different promises, um, different um, experiences of the power of God in, in both. Um, the, the power that we experience now with the Spirit is different. Um, in fact, uh, you know, uh, Hebrews, what is it? Hebrews 8, um, the new covenant is founded on better promises, right? So we have um, greater power in this present time. So there are differences, yeah. Different what? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, one of the commands we're going to look at just a couple weeks from now uh, from Exodus 20 is honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the fourth commandment. Um, And yet we keep that in a different way in this present epoch. So um, this is a subset, what you pointed out, is a subset of a a larger issue, which is um, we keep the same law in different ways. Um, So this would be something that's the same, same core law, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself. That's always been the case. Um, there is a common ethic that runs through the entire Bible. And yet, there are certain laws that they kept then that we don't keep now. In fact, it would dishonor God if we kept them. Um, if we kept the Passover and sacrificed a lamb, that would seriously dishonor Jesus, who is the ultimate Passover lamb. It would be saying, oh yeah, that sacrifice that Jesus did, not quite adequate definitely not something we want to say, right? Um, what about, say, um, salvation in Old and New Testaments? What's, what would we say about that? Is, are, are the Old Testament saints saved in the same way as us? They definitely are. So we could say same salvation through Christ But Christ is known differently um, and experienced differently now. Um, In the Old Covenant, he was known through types and shadows, these um, anticipations of Jesus. We saw a particularly dramatic one of these last Sunday school uh, or last, uh, you know, last summer when we were looking at the first half of Exodus, remember the rock of Moses, um, Exodus 17, um, the rock was struck by the staff of Moses, which represented God's curse. That's how he cursed Egypt. God himself being struck by the curse of judgment. And what happens? Water flows forth for the life of Israel, just like the staff this uh, Roman spear striking the side of Jesus and water and blood come forth for the life of the nations. Tremendous shadows 
looking forward, like you're reading Exodus 17, you're thinking about what does this mean? Wow, the Lord himself is going to become the recipient of our curse so that we might receive life. I understand now something about how I am saved, right? That's what an ancient Israelite would be thinking about if they really get what that passage is saying. They're knowing Jesus through that passage. It is, it is Jesus Christ whom they knew, even if they didn't know his name. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like the the um, the extent to which we receive and and experience God's grace now, it's still it's always been grace, right? Um, the great uh, emphases of the Reformation: faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, <laughs> for the glory of God alone. All the same, right? But the experience, um, not just of power, but of grace, is different. Um, in both cases, we experience much greater grace and power. Um, it's part of the, the main argument of the, of the letter of Hebrews. Hopefully, you've been tracking with that as we've been preaching through that. Um, how great is our condemnation if we neglect so great a salvation? God has given us so much more now in Jesus Christ. If you neglect the reality, um, it's all all the more um, worse. Yeah, Trina. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to put it under same here in terms of theological categories. Um, so she's pointing out that the, the basic categories for expressing who Christ is, the New Testament is constantly using the old to do that. So what, is, what, what did Jesus accomplish? Well, he is our Passover lamb who, whose blood makes it so that we're not judged and the, the angel of death passes over us. Right? Where do we get all of that um, through through the Old Testament? Um, you try to read the New Testament without knowing the Old. You're like, what's all this about, like priest, and like, what's all this about, like son of David reigning on a throne, and and you're like, you're not going to have any of those categories unless you read the Old Testament. And so, the theological categories are the same, but we would say that there's a difference here in terms of shadow or promise versus fulfillment. So, you know, there are lots of priests, but there's only one eschatological end times ultimate priest. Um, What they had in the Old Testament was shadows. We get the real deal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a very big difference. Um, and we'll just say, I'm going to put old, well, okay. We're going to say um, it's the same covenant of grace that runs through the whole thing. And yet, there's old versus new. And one of the key differences of old versus new covenant is the globalization of the church um, the true Israel is all people from every tribe and tongue and nation who become children of Abraham by faith 
And this is going to be a really important thing for the text we look at today um, as well. So this is, this is really good. Um, what, I want you to, what I want you to think about as you're looking at all this is when somebody dismisses the Old Testament, what they're thinking about is sort of what they're doing, the, the problem is that they're totally focused on the differences. They're totally focused on, well, things are different now, so I disagree with how you're using that, and I don't like the fact that, you know, this is the subtext. I, I don't like the fact that you're challenging my sin on this, right? And so it's very easy just to say, well, different for us now. You can't use that passage um, to force me to change. Um, what they're missing is all these things that are the same, um, such that we can say that the Old Testament is Christian Scripture, it is revealing the same God who gives us the same way of being saved and the same ultimate covenant of grace is running through the entire Bible, which means that our ethic, the things that we're called to do, the core ethic is the same, even if there are some differences um, in how we express that ethic. So Romans 15.4 is just one of those texts that should really, like, make us very afraid when we're the ones who saying, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. Romans 15.4 says, for whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the Old Testament, for whatever was written in the old days, in the former days, was written for our instruction, our instruction, we who are now living in the new covenant, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Think about all those New Testament letters. What are they doing over and over again? They're expounding Old Testament scripture and saying, now this is how you, O Christian, should live. Hebrews, one passage after another. You know, Psalm 95, he spends multiple chapters just unpacking. Here's what Psalm 95 means for you as a Christian. So we need the Old Testament. It is useful to us. It shows us the character of our God. It confronts us on our sin. It reveals Jesus to us. Um, I love 1 Peter 1. Concerning this salvation, the salvation Jesus brought, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. You. In other words, the Old Testament was written by the Spirit with you in mind. So we dare not neglect two-thirds or three-quarters of our Bibles. Um, This is the epic lead-up to the epic climax, which is what Jesus gives us in the New. So we need the Old Testament. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, one of the differences, the key differences is that now we are living in the age of the fulfillment of these things. Um, yeah, I, I just, um, I can't tell you how my reading of the New Testament has been enhanced 
by really immersing myself in the old. And you start to realize, wow, um, knowing the backstory makes such a huge difference. So let me just share with you the backstory. I know I always do this, but um, I really, really just want to make sure we understand as we're getting back into Exodus, how we got to where we are today, which is going to be in Exodus 19. Remember that the entire Bible begins with Eden being lost. Eden was that place where God wanted fellowship with his people. He created the world, and there's all kinds of really cool stuff here. He created the world as a temple, as a house for him to dwell in. And then he calls us, Adam and Eve, um, our parents, he calls the humanity to be his priest, to guard and to keep um, this glorious creation for God. And yet, Satan deceives them. They defile God's sanctuary. They honor Satan with their fealty instead of God. And so begins this story of both war and also, how will we get back to Eden? How will we get back to that thing that God had created for us, um, that place of fellowship with God? And so, um, there's this war between that God declares between himself and Satan, and between the seed of the woman, which is on God's team, and the seed of the serpent. Okay, so God has declared this war, and in Genesis 12, 15, 17, he takes this man, Abraham, and he makes really big promises. He says to Abraham, you're going to be the beginning of a new humanity. You're going to be the one who goes and becomes um, in covenant with me. Your people will become my people, and I will be their God. And we realize that part of this is not just about Abraham and his offspring, but also about a much larger purpose. It's not just, it's too small a thing for God to save simply the children of Abraham. No, read Genesis 12 with me just um, briefly here. God says, Genesis 12, he's talking about all that he's going to do for Abraham. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great. And then he says, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is the scope of God's salvation? The entire world. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it's with that backdrop in view that we then come to the Exodus. God's made these huge promises to Abraham, but by the end of Genesis, they're just a handful of people. They've gone down to sojourn in Egypt. They don't have a land anymore. The land was unfruitful for them. What does God do in the first half of Exodus? He defeats the seed of the serpent. And do you remember from Genesis, Exodus, sorry, Exodus 1 and 2? Do you remember how um, there's all kinds of seed of the woman, seed of the serpent stuff going on? Like the seed of the serpent, Pharaoh, tried to destroy the seed of the woman by casting the babies into the Nile, all of that. Remember how God defeated um, the seed of the serpent, in particular, what was the climactic plague, the death of the firstborn, right? This is all Genesis 3.15 going on. Um, the seed of the woman emerges free from captivity, 
because God, the great warrior, remember Exodus 15, God is a man of war, it actually says. He's a warrior. He is the great warrior who rescues the bride from the dragon, from the serpent. And there's all of this creation goodness going on. Remember how he makes the waters to separate and the dry land appears and we're thinking to ourselves, light bulbs, this is Genesis 1 all over again. The dry land appears and the Spirit of God is over the waters, just like Genesis 1-2. And there's this new creation that goes on where God recreates them, brings them out through the Nile, sorry, through the Red Sea. Um, He brings them through the Red Sea, destroys Satan and his army, and then he comes on the other side and they all proclaim God as king. Look at this, Exodus 15. The end of the song of the sea is Exodus 15, 17. Uh, talking about how God is now going to bring them in, plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. That's where this is all headed, going to the mountain of God, The Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord is king, is what the song of the sea says. God has been proclaimed as king, and now he brings his people to his holy mountain, Sinai. And just remember how Moses himself met God at Sinai before, and it says, here's the sign that I have sent you, Exodus 3, verse 12, When you emerge out of Egypt, you will worship God at this mountain. So here they are. They're back. And now here they all are, not just Moses, but all the people are worshiping God at this mountain. There's tons of um, Edenic allusions here um, as well. Eden was on a mountain. We know this from the actual Genesis 2, the rivers flowing from it. Rivers flow from something high. Um, but then Ezekiel 28, 14 talks about how um, there was the holy mountain of God, um, the, referring to Eden here. Um, they have come back to the mountain of God, the place where God's glory dwells, and they are meeting God together. And so the drama of what's happening here is now will they get to actually have fellowship with the God that humanity had lost fellowship with back in Genesis 3? Um, will we finally get to see renewed fellowship with God, the great and holy king? That's what we're asking ourselves as we come to this. And that's what the drama is as we're coming to this covenant that God's going to make is will we once again get to have, will simple humanity once again get to have fellowship with God? Now, it's with that in mind that we come now to our passage for today, Exodus 19, verse 1. And before I read any questions about the all-too-brief overview I just gave, yeah, Yeah, I didn't really um, develop it very much. Um, I was all too brief there. Um, Ezekiel 28 is a fascinating passage. And it's likening the prince of Tyre um, 
to one of the cherubs that God had on his holy mountain. And it says um, here that um, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Um, And it talks about all the precious stones. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. So just again, that all, all I'm trying, I'm not trying to expound that text because it's very complex. Like, what's it all referring to? Who's he talking about? Um, who's this guardian cherub? I'm just trying to say that in terms of Ezekiel's understanding of Eden, it is a mountain. That's all I was trying to do. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, so let's look at Exodus 19. We're just going to look at the first six verses because there's so much here. The first six verses. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, so first three verses, roughly, um, are about um, their travel narrative. So what is, what is the first three verses saying about where they are? Yeah, they're in the wilderness. Yep. So have they reached the promised land? No, that promise is still not yet fulfilled. Are they, are they on the mountain? They're encamped before the mountain. Okay, so there they are. They're at the foot of the mountain, and God calls Moses alone out. And he comes, and he says to him, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. Okay. Now that, um, that language of encamping, that is a very, very important word that keeps coming up in numbers. We're going to keep seeing that if we had continued reading. Uh, remember, uh, basically, Genesis through um, Numbers is, is one unified narrative. Um, you could actually say more than that. You could say Genesis through Second Kings is one unified narrative. But um, it's all super interconnected story. And um, this encampment language keeps coming up in Numbers as they make their way through the wilderness. Um, it's this itinerary word. But Here, we're only going to see it basically here because they're going to be staying at the foot of Sinai now for an entire year as they receive everything that they get in Exodus, everything that they get in Leviticus, and everything they get in the beginning of Numbers, all the way up to Numbers 10, verse 11, when they depart from the mountain. 
Okay, so this is setting the stage for where they're going to be for quite a while. And look at what God wants them to know as they've arrived. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Why is it so important that they know and remember what, they, what God did to the Egyptians? Like, why, why is that, like, right out of the gate going to be important? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, what happens when we forget what God did? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we sin. And this... And this is connected to what you're saying. Like every time God, you know, addresses us, he's always saying, remember, remember, remember. Um, this is the premise for everything he's about to say, right? When we forget, what do we forget? We lose our sense of identity. I'm um, just skipping ahead for a moment. What's the, what's the identity that God assigns to himself and to us? Exodus 20, verse 2. Before he gets to any of the commands... He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slave. We're going to make a lot of hay out of this later. But um, the basic premise is, this is your identity. You are the ones whom I brought out of Egypt. This is my identity. I'm the one who brought you. Right? So when you forget that, what God did, you forget the new identity that he has um, that he has assigned to them, that his, his works have accomplished for them. And he gives an explanation of what this work is. It's a poetic explanation. He says, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Why does he use that image? What's he getting at when he says, I bore you on eagles' wings? How would we even tackle a question like that? Yeah, look around in the Bible. Where else do we see eagles coming up? Lots of places. One of them is in Deuteronomy 32. This is also one of these really important passages. But Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 11. Talks about how like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. By the way, that verse fluttering over is the same word used in Genesis 1, 2, for the um, Spirit of God hovering over the waters, right? So there's this echo, again, new creation kind of thing going on here. Um, The eagle is fluttering over its nest, over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. What's he getting at? What's, what, what aspect of eagles is being brought, brought to the fore here when it talks about eagles' wings? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're being born along. And you know, they may be saying to themselves, hey, we, uh, 
we just tramped through the wilderness to get here. It was, it was hard going. Um, and yet there's the, God's wanting them to say, um, I love this image from Deuteronomy 1. I bore you on my shoulders as a father carries his little son. Right? Um, same idea. How is God to this point carrying them through the wilderness? Can you think of some things back from earlier in Exodus, from previous times that show that this is no ordinary desert trek? Yeah. Yeah, the manna, and then the water from the rock, right? Um, They all thought they were going to die in the wilderness, and God bore them along, right? Um, Even the fact that they made it out of Egypt in the first place. And we're able to get through the Red Sea. All of this is miraculous intervention on God's part. Um, And he's wanting them to see, look, the fact that you guys got here is because I bore you on eagle's wings. So on the one hand, an eagle is a powerful hunter. And sometimes in Scripture, um, eagles are portrayed in this way as, um, you know, soaring with incredible speed and power. So like Nebuchadnezzar in Ezekiel 17 um, is portrayed as this resplendent eagle who's destroying the land. Um, That's one way in which that metaphor is used. This is different. Eagles are also carrying birds for their young, right? And that's what God's tapping into here. I bore you on eagle's wings. As Isaiah will later use this in Isaiah 40, um, you know, you'll run and not go, grow weary. Um, I will carry you on eagle's wings. Um, it's totally bringing this out. Okay, so God is wanting them to remember, look, you have been graciously treated by me. So let's just get this out there right, right at the outset. Someone says, this is what you had to do in the Old Testament in order to be forgiven. You had to you had to keep God's law, and then he would save you. And analyze on, on the basis of Exodus 19.4. Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is him doing all this when they are, they're not doing anything to distinguish themselves right? Um, It has always been by grace, you know, same covenant of grace. It's always been by grace. Now, that's going to be really important as we come to this next verse. It's going to require some careful thinking. Okay. I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. In other words, coming to Sinai is coming to God. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I was debating all week long whether to bring this out. (laughs) You should know that in Hebrew, sometimes the if part is very clearly marked and the then part is not. That's the case in this verse. So one translation that's possible is what ESV has. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and if you will keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession, and then you will be a kingdom of priests. However, another way of translating this that's equally valid is, 
Now, therefore, if, if you will keep my covenant, sorry, if you will keep, obey my voice, then you will keep my covenant. And then he would begin a new thought saying, and you um, will become my treasured possession and you will be a kingdom of priests. In other words, that latter part, not under the then part. So what I want you to do is just think with me for a second. This is part of what we call exegesis, where you have multiple interpretive options, and you're trying to figure out, okay, if both work grammatically and both work in terms of the the words, uh, which makes the most sense given the context? Does it make the most sense to say... If you obey, then you're my treasured possession, and then you're my, um, you know, my holy nation, etc. Or does it make sense to say, if you obey my voice, then you're my covenant-keeping people, and then not conditional, um, you will become my treasured possession, my royal priesthood. How would we figure this out? Um, let's see here, treasured possession, royal priesthood. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's going to be what we bring into this passage that is going to shape what we, how we understand the passage. And this is one of those situations where if in the local context there aren't clear indicators... Where are we going to get the right presuppositions to bring to this to make make us so we understand it? It's going to be the rest of Scripture, right? So, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, so what I did um, is, um, because time is running short, I need to um, hop things along a little bit. I just looked for all the instances where treasured possession comes up. It's an unusual word, really cool word, in fact. Where, Where does treasured possession come up? Well, every single time that it comes up, other than this, it is an unconditional statement. So let me just read these to you. Um, Deuteronomy 7.6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, for the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That same thing is in Deuteronomy 14.2. Uh, Deuteronomy 26.18, the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he promised you. Um, Psalm 135, verse 4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. So, in light of that, I think part of what, I, what I'm trying to get us to think about is that I, I think this might make more sense. Obviously, they need to be covenant-keeping God if they're going to continue to have the special status as God's people. So there's a sense in which this is, it's not like a huge difference, but I think it does make a difference when you hear, look, I want you to be my covenant-keeping people, 
Well, let's just get this straight. You are going to become this, my treasured possession, my royal priesthood. That's what I've done in bringing you out of Egypt. Let's not forget what I've done. I've done this gracious thing. I've given you this new identity. And now you are my treasured possession. And let's just talk about what that means, treasured possession. Um, well, actually, before I do that, any, any thoughts on this, on this conditional statement question? Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and I think that, like, you know, this, this whole point of, like, we are to be covenant-keeping, that's not in question here, right? We have to be a covenant-keeping people. Um, that's what God is calling them to be. Um, what I'm trying to emphasize is that these statements about who they are, are things that God declares to be true by grace. They're not things that they have to earn. Um, when they keep God's covenant, it reflects these things. Um, but these are the things that God has graciously made them to be. And I really love um, the word treasured possession. There are two um, kind of non-metaphorical uses of this. Um, one of them is in 1 Chronicles 29. Um, in this passage, this is, this is really neat. This brings out what, what God's saying when he says, you guys are my treasured possession. First Chronicles 29, 3, David speaking to Solomon. He says, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure, it's the same word, of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of my God. Do you get the idea? This word is talking about royal treasure, special treasure of the king. Same thing in Ecclesiastes 2.8. Um, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 2.8 about his efforts. He says, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings. There it is. And provinces. In other words, this word is talking about the royal treasure. And what is he saying about Israel? You are my royal treasure. And think about this in light of what he says right after it. You are my treasure possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And then the word and in verse 6 could also be translated but, so con contrastive word here, for all the earth is mine, but you shall be a kingdom of priests. You shall be a holy nation. So does God own the entire world? Yes, he does. But now he says, 
you are going to be my special treasure. And here's what that means as well. A royal priesthood. Or, um, that's, that's how the Greek translates it, a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that mean? For Israel to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Yeah, they mediate the presence of God. Now, we're about to hear in the unfolding of this story, Moses setting apart the people, um, the, the, the tribe of Levi, and then within the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his sons as priests, who will mediate the presence of God to the people. Okay, But even as he's doing that, and he's consecrating one portion for that special task, and only they can do that in Israel, he's saying at the outset, look, here's your general identity as a people. You are an entire kingdom of priests. What does that imply about the relationship of Israel to the nations? They are to mediate the knowledge of God to the nations, yes. And so, um, how does that tie in to the epic story that we heard up to this point? How do we, what does this make us um, remember, or how does this help us understand? Remember the, the great story that began all the way in Eden? What's Israel's, going to be Israel's role in that story? Yeah, think about this. The royal priesthood or the, the, the kingdom of priests, right? Here's this entire kingdom. Israel mediating God to the world, to the nation, to the nations. The promise in Genesis 12:3 of God blessing the, the nations through Abraham, even as they're being singled out here, in other words, this is so important. Every, even as Israel's being singled out, you're my special treasure. You're the royal treasure. You guys, I have a purpose for you as my royal treasure, which is I have a much bigger fish to fry. You know, I have a much bigger, bigger plan than just Israel being saved. I want you to be my vehicle for bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, Israel is not going to be terribly good at this, but it's always been part of their mission. And there are, there are lots of um, instances of this happening. You think of um, you know, Rahab, um, you think of Ruth, you think of um, uh, you know, when Naaman... Um, the Syrian comes in Second Kings 5. Um, all these instances of Israel mediating to the nations the knowledge of God. From the very beginning, that was God's purpose. They're a holy nation, and by their holiness, they will also be a witnessing nation. That's what God wants them to be. So there's both identity and there's also mission here. Um, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the priesthood of all believers in the New Testament. Let's let's go there because um, 
This is what I want us to do as we're thinking about, okay, wow, Israel is a saved people by grace. Israel is God's treasure. Israel is God's royal priesthood, the the kingdom of priests, and they were to mediate God to the world. This is what God wants them to be, a holy people, covenant-keeping people who then are set apart so that the nations would know the true and the living God. Where does this all go? Well, remember always that Jesus is the first fulfillment of everything. So Jesus is the royal priest. He's both the king and the priest who is the precious possession of the Father. And he mediates the knowledge of God, not just to Israel, but to all the world. Isaiah 49.6 is too small a thing that you should be my servant to rescue Israel. I'll make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That is first fulfilled in Jesus. But we now have that identity as, one, as those who are in him. So take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Hopefully this like really blows your mind as you think about this. Like here, here again, like is studying Exodus 19 worth it? Oh, yes. Because now when you read this, 1 Peter 2.9, and remember who's he talking to? Not just um, Israelites, not just Jewish people. He's talking to Christians, Gentile Christians. Even earlier in this um, letter, he talks about them forsaking the empty ways inherited from your forefathers. That's, he's talking about Gentiles, okay? 1 Peter 2.9 then says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that language there is how um, the Greek Bible translated treasured possession. It's the same, same word. In other words, you're his treasured possession. That, look at this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is, first, what is Peter doing here in 1 Peter 2.9? What's he doing with the, the Exodus 19 passage? Yeah. You guys, you, the audience of this letter, are these things. What, what God said to Israel at the, mount, at, at the foot of Sinai after bringing them out of Egypt, he now says in a climactic way to his church. And again, all these categories are like fitting together, right? Jesus as the true Passover lamb who rescues us in a new and better exodus, not out of bondage to Egypt, but out of bondage to sin. All of that is the premise of this, right? We are those who are the recipients of the new and better end times exodus. We are redeemed, and therefore, because you're redeemed, this is who you are. You are a holy nation. You are now a priesthood, all of you. And this is getting what you're getting at, the priesthood of all believers. You guys are a priesthood. You share in the priesthood of Jesus. You now... Are all of these things, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, God's treasured possession for what purpose? Proclaiming the excellencies. Again, mediating God to the world, right? This is pretty, pretty astonishing stuff, especially when you realize this is 
spoken not just to Israel, Israelites, you know, literal children of Abraham, but to us Gentiles too. Um, Isaiah 66, 21 said, some of them, some of the Gentiles also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. This has come to pass. Revelation 1, 6, God has made us a kingdom, priests to God, his God and Father. Revelation 5.10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, you, the, the lamb, the lamb that was slain. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So this is who you are. So what is, what's the practical payoff of knowing this? How does reading Exodus 19, realizing, wow, that was said of Israel, but now it's true of me in Christ, how does that change how you live? Yes. Yes. It's our identity. It's our purpose. Like this glorious reality of being a saved people, being God's treasured possession. Think about that for a second. Like God treasures you. You're like his precious gem, right? He's so glad he has you as his people. And then purpose, right? Um, And again, this is where the conditionality thing comes in, right? You are these things. You're God's treasured possession, not because you were so good, but because God graciously saved you. And now you have this great purpose, mediating God to the world, not because you're so amazing, but because God, in his amazing grace, has reconstituted you so that the nations would be brought to the mountain of God, right? So... Just, just realizing that, like, understanding the purpose and mission of Israel is a window into our purpose and our mission and our identity. Um, all these types and shadows are so that now you, which was what all the shadows were about, can say with astonishment, wow, how much more so for me now? Um, you're not allowed to think lightly of yourself as a Christian, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, the, the story of Israel is our story. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There's not two peoples of God. There's one people. And what Israel was always meant to be, now the church is fulfilling what that purpose was. Israel failed in that great purpose, but now we are reconstituted in Jesus to be the royal priesthood. So let's ask God to bless us in this. Lord, we thank you that the Old Testament is not just sort of extra bonus material. Um, It's not just sort of optional stuff, but it really is the very categories by which you want us to understand ourselves. And we're just amazed by this. And we're so thankful that we have such a rich Bible, that we have so many different pictures and pointers to the rich identity of what we have in Jesus and also the rich purpose that you've given to us in this present age. Help us, Lord, to really uh, internalize this identity that we are treasured by you, we are your holy people, that we belong to you, and that, Lord, we are your royal priesthood. And now help us, Lord, to fulfill this great purpose of mediating your grace and your love and the truth of who you are to this watching world. Help us to do this through our actions, by our holy living. Help us also to do this through our words as we speak truth 
so that others who are far from you might know you. We pray it all in Jesus' name.